Amen. What's going on, True North? All right, all right, all right. I'm feeling, I'm feeling the tiredness. You guys are just getting done with school. You're probably at home in your pajamas doing a bunch of nothing, right? I'm assuming that's what I used to do when I was done with high school for a little bit. Uh, So I get it, but I'm excited because Christmas, as Jonah just mentioned, is right around the corner. And coincidentally, that means that we are on our last Christmas sermon in our Christmas series, The Problem with Christmas. And so I'm kind of at a bittersweet moment here, right? Christmas is around the corner. We're excited. I'm excited. Uh, But I've liked this Christmas series. Have you guys liked this series, The Problem with Christmas? Yes. All right. Well, I think this time of year certainly... If, if we're honest, is is one that does bring about some natural excitement. Or you've got the parties that you're going to, the the, the white elephant gift. I think I've done, I've done like six white elephant gift exchanges in the last like two weeks, which has been really, uh, you know, it's been helpful just because I've just been regifting the same gift over and over and over again. What's happening back there? I'm not sure. But there's there's a lot of things going on at Christmas, right? You've got the parties, you've got your family in town, right? Those annoying cousins that you haven't seen in a while, and your your grandparents who are asking you, you know, whether or not you're dating someone yet, and you know everything that's going on. So there's just a lot of excitement that that is coupled with this time of year, and, and I think arguably, I think it's fair to say that this is the Christmas season is probably one of the most highly anticipated time slots on everyone's calendar, at least. In America, would that be fair to say? Right? We we all look forward to Christmas. Maybe not how you used to, right? As children, there was a there was a, an excitement level that that just came with the sense of awe and wonder. You didn't know if Santa Claus was real or not. I don't know where you guys stood on that, but uh, maybe. But there's just still this sense of excitement, right? And there's kind of a natural buzz in the air, kind of a hum of, of excitement, and people talk about joy. And there's like these weird smells that go with it, and these pine cones in the corner that smell like cinnamon and, and all this stuff. So it's just, there's just like high anticipation for this time of year for all the things that go along with it and the families and the parties and the gifts. And, and so I think it's fair to say that again, there's just anticipation for what this season that we are currently in. And so one of the things about me, I like to tell about my quirks when I'm up here, I have a, I have a quirk. Uh, I, I'm not a very excitable person. I like to say in the sense of, I don't get super bubbly about things. I'm oh my goodness, Christmas. I don't get, I don't not like that, right? But I get excitable in the sense of if, if, when I'm anticipating something, usually it takes the form of something coming in the mail, which by the way, I, 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 they always say, people all, will always say, you guys probably have heard this, that you become your parents. And I'm only 23 years old, but I can say 100% that that is true, right? My dad used to, he was like super, he would check the mail like two or three times a day and he would just do it over and over again. And I used to think that it was kind of dumb. <laughs> all right. But, but that, that's me, right? When I'm anticipating something, when I'm excited about something coming in the mail, I check the mailbox, like the P.O. box or whatever that comes along with my, uh, my apartment, I check it like two or three times a day. Even though I know the mail does not come three times a day, I check it, even though I know it's not going to be there. My wife's always like, Josiah, you know that it's not going to be in there. Why are you checking your, the mailbox? And, and I don't know. That's just the way when I get excited about something, that's what I do. I check it over and over and over again. Well, I think we come to a passage today in our Bibles in Luke chapter 2, where one of the most anticipated events in human history up until this point is about to happen. Or realistically, unless in, our, in the way that it's presented in our passage, it already has happened, right? That, that historically speaking, particularly for the Jews, this event 
was something that they had highly anticipated for years and for years and for years, right? What the Old Testament refers to as the coming of the Messiah, right? They were anticipating this Messiah figure that was going to come. He was going to rule as a king, right? He was going to destroy all of Israel's enemies. He was going to bring peace and prosperity and wealth and his rule with an iron fist as Israel, as a, this, the best nation in the world. And that's what they were, they were anticipating, right? That's this picture of the Messiah that they were hoping for. He was going to come with the scepter and he was going to say, all right, all the enemies of Israel, obliterated and now Israel is going to be the the ultimate you know whatever utopia on on earth and they were going to have peace and prosperity and wealth and so they were highly anticipatory of that um, account or the, the I think the benefit as Pastor Rod mentioned I think it was like three weeks ago now of being on the other side of history is that we can now see we have this full revelation of this story and how it happened and how it unfolded from beginning to end, right? And we know when we can read throughout scripture, we can trace all, all the way back into the, the beginning of the, the Bible, Genesis 1, the seed of the woman that happened at the fall of man, Genesis 3, and the promise of the coming Messiah that would crush the head of the serpent. The serpent. We can trace all of that all throughout the canon and the overarching meta narrative of, of scripture. And so I think that this particular account in, in Luke chapter 2 will be in verses 8 uh, through, 20, through 21, refers to this this anticipated event as a story, right? It says particularly this, the story is the good news of great joy for all people. Well, that, that's to me, that, that kind of sounds like a, an interesting like sales pitch, right? If you were trying to convince someone of this story, they say, hey, this is good news of great joy for all people, right? Some salesman that knocks on your door and says, hey, I've got a very good product for you. This product is going to bring you great joy. It's had all these clinical testing, all these clinical trials. There's no negative side effects, and therefore everyone can have it, right? You're not going to take it. You're not going to get hives or do anything like that. It's, it's good news of great joy for all people. And I think in keeping with our, 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 you know, the title of our overarching series, right, the problem with Christmas is that oftentimes that we can just view this story as just that, as a story, right? Even keeping in line with this whole idea of a, of a sales pitch, uh, people say the marketing strategies these days are, they don't, they're not selling you, like if they're selling you a bottle of shampoo, they're not selling you a bottle of shampoo, they're selling you the ideals behind the shampoo, right? The, the, the message behind it, the, the values of the company, right? It's not just the product in and of itself, it's the, the values that are behind it. And I think oftentimes that can kind of how we view this story of Christ, like this story of the good news of great joy for all people, right? We don't see it, right, in, in that sense as the product. We see it just as the ideals or the, the message or the news, I guess you could say, behind the product, which I think is, is a reversed way that we should think about it. Because in actuality, you'll take note on uh, your, your bulletins, right, that the title of this message is the good news of great joy for all people is actually a person. So in that sense, it's actually the product itself. It's not the story behind it. It's not some exchange of vocabulary that we can pass from generation to generation. It is that, certainly. But I think there's a, a level of depth that comes with it because it is not just a story. It's not just something that you can sit down. It's not just the Christmas story that you read on Christmas morning. This is actually a real living person, 
the person that we know of, and in Luke chapter 2, of Jesus Christ. And so today I want to look at that. I want to look at the person of Christ and, and see him as the good news of great joy for all people. What we refer to as today as the gospel message. And I want to see what Christ, particularly in this text, what this means for us and what it means for, for all of us in this room moving forward today. So Luke chapter 2 is where we're at. If you're opening up your Bibles with me, we'll be in verses 8 through 21 today. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 21. I'll begin in verse 8, and it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So there we have it, right? Fear not, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And then they say what it is. The, the good news is a person. The very next verse, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this is how you know this is real. This is how you know that this is true. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby in, in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, right, just as it had been told to them. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Look back all the way at the beginning of this text that we just read. Verse eight, we'll read it again really quickly. It says, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Right? If you think back to last week's sermon, last week's lesson, this, the, a text that we looked at, I'm not sure if you were here or not, but we, we talked about the idea of normal being the new special. And that's kind of a confusing concept. But if you weren't here, we basically just talked about Mary and her life of faithfulness. And we don't necessarily know what Mary was doing before she was given this great task of, of bearing the child, bearing the Savior of the world. But we, we can kind of gather from the text that in this normal town of Nazareth that she was living in, she was being faithful in her day-to-day, everyday, boring, quote-unquote, life, right? The mundane things that she was called to do. So normal, in that sense, would be the new special. Right? She was just going about her daily life. We don't know much about her. We don't have an Instagram feed of all her highlights. We don't know. We just know that she was called to something extraordinary when she was doing the normal, right? Normal being the new special and being faithful in the little things that God has called all of us to would be the application of that. So I think it's a, a fair assumption with that idea in mind to say that the shepherds certainly fit into this category, right? That shepherding during this time was kind of seen as, if you were in Maine, Pastor Mike touched on this, they were seen as the, the low-class citizens, right? The blue-collar workers, the people who were, I guess, the equivalents of, like, you know, McDonald's. Or, I don't know, like, just people who were the very, like, you don't get paid much. It's, quote-unquote, unskilled labor. Uh, it's, it, this is what the shepherds were seen. I think that's, you know, part of the reason why was because their essential function as a shepherd 
right, was to, to protect the sheep. If you know anything about sheep, you know that sheep are probably amongst the dumbest of all animals, right? They can, I, I saw a, a video actually on, I think it was Facebook a couple of days ago, where a sheep had like fallen into this hole and all that were sticking out were his legs. And, and, and so this, this shepherd had to, had to grab it by its legs and pull it out. Otherwise it would have died, right? He couldn't have eaten anything. There was no water in this hole, right? It just fell into this hole and it stuck. And so that would be the essential function of a shepherd, right? To make sure that they're not tripping over rocks and bashing their head on the ground and, and doing all this other stuff, right? So that they, they could maintain their livelihood so that they could protect these sheep. That's what their job was about. So in other words, a shepherd's job was essentially just to sit there and to wait for something dumb to happen, at least on the, on the sheep's part, or wait for a wild animal to come and, and to, to fight it off or to fend it off or to scare it off or whatever else that, that was what was required in that moment. So that's what a shepherd's jobs was. So needless to say, right, shepherds were not amongst the most respected and highly sought after careers at this time. Right? People were not like, man, I want to grow up and I want to be a shepherd, right? I want to spend all of my time sitting in grass fields and, you know, picking up after sheep when they fall down and, and are drowning in the water because they can't get up or whatever the case may be, right? That, that's not what people uh, would have been saying, right? And even from the, the, the Pharisees' perspective, to a certain extent, shepherds were, were seen as, um, as outcasts, right? Intentionally, because from the Pharisees' perspective, right, the religious leaders during this time, they, they would have been seen as, as unclean, religiously unclean. Because, because of the, the nature of their work and because of the intense uh, attention to detail that, that sheep require, they, they weren't able to, at least uh, on a consistent basis or perhaps ever, to, able to keep the Sabbath, you know, in, to keep it holy as what was taught during this time as, as important for religious purity. And so they would have been seen as religiously unclean. So there were just these people, this group of people over here, essentially like modern day, you know, I guess people who like live in the woods who cut themselves out from from society and who, I don't know, you just, you don't, you don't really know what's going on in their life. They don't know what's going on over here. That's kind of the idea of, of shepherds, right, going on in this text. They, they, so I think, you know, all that to say, I think it should capture all of our attention, at least it captured my attention in, in this first couple of verses, that, that such lowly people were the first to be informed of the most significant event, the most significant happening, the most significant story, good news that has ever taken place in the history of mankind. Just think about that for a second. Right? The people who were seen as the least likely to receive this news, and in fact, practically speaking, they were the least likely to receive this news because they, they didn't have some social status where they could they could tell other people about this news, right? No one was going to listen to them. They were shepherds out in the dirty fields. They smelled really bad. No one wanted to talk to them. They're religiously unclean. They could not spread the news in the way that we think would have been necessary, right? We, we talk about sharing the gospel, spreading this gospel message. Well, the shepherds could not have done that as effectively as, say, uh, the, the Pharisees or, say, the, the people who are in higher positions of authority, the people who were seen as, as more highly respected. So it, does, it's, it's, it seems like a contradiction, right? It's an oxymoron. Why would, why would the angel appear to these people who seem who are seemingly the most unworthy by society's standards to receive this great message, and yet we see God sovereignly, again, and I think sovereignly and intentionally choosing those who were considered least worthy, again, at least from how the society per perceived them, to, to, to know of he, because right, this message is a person, it's not just some thought 
process. It's not just some, again, agreed upon story that we can pass along. It's a person, the least worthy to, to know about he who was and is the very definition of what it means to be worthy. So I think that's going to be important for us to consider as we continue uh, moving on. Verse 9, as in a, if we continue moving in Luke chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, it says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Again, here I'm, I'm telling on myself a little bit in, in some of my, my quirks. Uh, but when I read this passage, uh, for whatever reason, at least when I was studying it this past week, I, admittedly, this isn't something that I, I constantly think of. But when I was reading it this week, this mental picture was coming to my mind of, of what was going down when the angels or the angel appeared to these shepherds and they're responding out of fear, right? For, for whatever reason, I pictured me in this group of shepherds and we're all, basically, we're all just hillbillies. We're all wearing like overalls and, and straw hats and we've got our, our overalls like rolled up and we're, we're barefooted and we've got like that wheat that people like that long wheat thing that like we're chewing on and everyone's talking in thick southern accents. And so th- here's kind of how the, the story unfolds, at least in the way that I was thinking about it. Right. So they see we're not really exactly sure what they see, but it was enough. It was the glory of the Lord show round about them, at least in the King James Version. That's how it would be stated, right? The glory of the Lord, they see something, a bright light. We don't know. We don't know exactly what it looked like, but it was enough to be scary. And so one of the shepherds, and obviously, right, we're hillbillies. His name's Rufus. Rufus is like, well, Rufus, is that a, I mean, is that a UFO I see up over there in the, in the sky, this bright light? I'm not sure we're in the grassy fields. It's dark, and all of a sudden, there's some craziness going on, and, and, the, and these hillbillies are running around, and they're, Rufus, what's going on? And so one of, one of the other guys, right, his, he's got his straw hats on, his straw hat, and he pulls it off, and he's like, never in my life. And everyone's just panicking, and they're, and they're going wild. And so, you know, all of a sudden, the angel, they, they start getting real close, and then everyone starts to panic, right? They're, they're like... Like, what do we do? Everyone's like trying to grab their staff and so that they can like fend for themselves and like, these are coming forth and all this stuff. And, and so sheep are going buck wild and chaos just starts to, it, it's just pandemonium. This is, I mean, it's, this is not biblical, right? This is just how I, this is how I read this text. Right? I'm not saying that this is, this is canon or anything like that, but this is, this is what is going on in my mind, right? They're, they're everyone's just going nuts and, and there's just this, this chaos. Um, but after all that, right, after all that madness, after all that mayhem, here's, here's what intrigues me about this particular story. The angel says in verse 10, fear not, again, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. So they, st- they, they, they settle the craze that the, the shepherds would have been in, right, they're seeing something that they've never seen before. It's crazy. It's a UFO kind of like, that's how, if you were to tell me this story, like I saw some angels in the dark field, right? I would have been like, you saw a UFO, like you saw a light, like that's kind of what it would be seen as today. So they, they settled all of that. They calmed the shepherds by saying that they had some sort of news, that they had some sort of a story, right? And, and I think some renderings of the, the Greek word here, right? Uangelito mean a report of recent events, so, so they tell the shepherds that something big has recently happened, right? And not only big, but, but something good, so good, in, in fact, that the news by its very nature, the text says, is of great joy. So here, here's the crazy part about this, right? This, this good news of great joy, it says, will be for all people. So this present news, 
this event that has recently taken place, this present news, right, is a report of recent events, will be for all people. So the angel refers to a present and current event and says there are going to be future ramifications of this current event that extend into the future for all people, right? And, and 2,000 years later, it's still having these ramifications that we will see in our text today. I mean, we've talked often from this pulpit about the, uh, the exclusivity of the gospel, right? That there is only one way. To, to, to make it into heaven, to know, to have a relationship with God, right? To, he, Jesus says this himself in John, in John, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that no one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus makes that claim. This is, there's an exclusive element to the gospel, that, that, that it is for everyone, but there's a certain way, there's one path, there's one means by which you can be saved, but I think that in this, in this level, in this, in this text, rather, we get another layer or another aspect, you could say, to this message of the good news, this message that we know to be the gospel message. And I think there's a level of inclusivity of this gospel message that I think would be helpful for us to consider. And so I think we live in a culture, in a time period, where inclusiveness is a hot topic. I think that's fair to say. right? And then I think the world has defined inclusiveness in a certain way. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but the, the, the verb, or not the verb, I guess the word, the verbiage of inclusive has kind of morphed and changed over time, right? It used to have some sort of meaning, and, and, and we argue because of evolutionary processes, we, we are now enlightened human beings, and so the things that we once thought are, are, are no longer valid, they're archaic, they're old news, right? We, we now understand more things about even human nature, and so uh, definitions about certain things constantly are changing, they're constantly morphing. I think the, the word inclusive is, is no exception to that, right? I think in, in some ways, it's one of the, the major words that has more morphed and shift and changed uh, over time. So the culture certainly has a lot to say about what it means uh, to be inclusive. And, and I, think, I, I think for you guys, it's trying to tell you this is when you think of the word inclusive, when you think about what this means, when it's teased out, this is what they want you to believe. It's, it's associated with a certain type of event. It's associated with a certain type of reality. And so I want to I cut through, hopefully, some of the confusion about what the world would have us to, to believe in terms of inclusive and what the gospel message is in terms of inclusive and what a biblical definition of inclusive means as it relates to this good news of great joy for all people. And so that's point number one for you guys. If you're, if you're taking notes on your, on your pages, it would be point number one, compare the world's definition of inclusive to Christ. Again, keeping in line with this, this thought, it's, this, is, this, is, this good news is not just simply a story, right? It's not just simply me standing up here and relaying a quote-unquote message to you. We're talking about a person here, a person who has, who has defined the terms and who has stated the terms of what it means to enter into a relationship with himself through this news, through this message of the gospel. So let's define our terms in terms of inclusive, right? So things that may potentially come to mind when you think of inclusiveness. Right? And these are, are all examples that are kind of framed in the negative, and they're, they're meant to be silly in, in some sense, but I, I think you'll get what I mean, right? So a, a, an example of this would be kids forming, like, teams on the playground and not including someone, right? Not intentionally saying, we don't want you to play with us. Right? I, I don't know if that ever happened to you guys. That happened to me. It hurts, 
right? That's, it's not fun. And I cried, but I got over it. Right? So kids forming teams on the playground to play a game and leaving a kid out. That's the negative. That's being exclusive. And so that's not being inclusive. So that would be a, an example. Another one I think would be a circle of friends. And this one's a, a high stereotype of, of high schoolers. Uh, I don't necessarily think it's always true, but this is definitely a lot of times when people think of high schoolers and think of this, right? A circle of friends kind of closing their borders to the exclusion of everyone else. Right? They call it cliques. Right? You guys form cliques and it's like, no, we're not going to allow you to, to enter into our friend group. We have no interest in, in you uh, being friends with us. We have our own little squad and we're going to keep it that way. We're going to be squad goals and you're not a goal within our squad goals. Right? We don't want that. So that would be another example, right? And then Part, partly with that, what goes along with that would be like intentionally not inviting people to hang out. Right? And I think I've, I've been a part of situations where this, we've had these types of conversations with friends where it's like, should we invite Billy or Rufus over there, you know, in, in, the, in the field being a shepherd? Should we invite him? We're like, no, he's, he's not going to come. He never says yes. He's, he's got homework, whatever. Right? He, and so we ex- intentionally exclude people or, or obviously that's not being inclusive. And then, you know, not inviting people to your, your group chats or like tagging people, not tagging people on Instagram. I mean, whatever the case may be, right? These are the, the negative examples. But I think in large part, this is somewhat an outdated definition of how the world would define being inclusive. I think they certainly still maintain these things, but I think it has even evolved beyond this, right? So the world has built on this basic definition, all of those things. The basic definition of that would be allowing people to participate, allowing people to to be involved, and allowing people or trying to create an environment where people feel welcomed. Right, that's what it is. So, like, you want people to be involved, you want them to feel invited, and you want them to be welcomed. And I think that historically has been the definition of inclusive, but I think the world has certainly built on that. It takes it a step further and says not only should, you know, you allow everyone to participate, be involved, and feel welcomed, you should also accept, which really is kind of moving towards the, the realm of, of affirming, but you should also, you should accept which really in some sense means affirm people's belief systems, values, and lifestyles, regardless of what those might be, regardless of how you feel about them, regardless you know, of whether or not a Christian would say that that is sin or that is you know, right or whatever, whatever it is. Right? They, they would say it doesn't matter what you think or what you believe. You should affirm all truth as truth, regardless your truth, my truth, that, that kind of idea. And, and this is really what the world wants you to think of first when this word or this idea and this notion of inclusive is, is brought up. Right, that, uh, this is the association that they want you to make. Right? When they say inclusive, it's like you need to not only make people feel welcomed, allow them to be involved, but you should affirm their very belief system regardless of whether or not it completely contradicts your, your own. And so that, that, that in, in fact, I think this definition has made its way into some circles of Christianity. And I think that definition is being applied to this message to the person of Jesus Christ. I think oftentimes Christians, quote unquote, they, they try to make they try to make the argument that that Christ is the ultimate example of this worldly definition of inclusiveness, right? That he is the reason why. Like they they, they make this they draw this line of, of Christ saying, you know, he he is this. He affirmed other people's you know whatever the, the case may be, and so uh, that, that he is and the the very definition of again of how de- how inclusiveness should look like. So let's return to our to our specific text. Right, verse ten says. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And I think here, right, it's easy to say, well, well, there it is, 
right? This is, I mean, end of story, case closed, we can pack our bags and we can leave because the Bible says it right there. This is good news for great joy for all people. It doesn't qualify, it doesn't do anything. And, and so people can use this kind of as a proof text and to say, well, there it is. That, that's the definition, at least how the word would want you to think of inclusiveness. Except I think the Bible gives us a very different definition. The whole counsel of scripture, when taken together, together gives us a very different, different definition of what it means to be inclusive when it comes to this gospel message. So let me put it to you this way. Uh, most of you, I think all of you at this point, are, are done with school. You've taken finals, or maybe you're taking finals in January, which, by the way, I, I think that's horrible. The, the Christmas break and then finals afterwards, I mean, whatever, I'm not, I'm not a part of the school system, but I, I don't like that. But anyways, so you guys are done with school, at least for now, and you're, you're on break, and, and so you, you go back to school in January, and you come to school one day and you're, you're feeling, you know, a certain type of way. You're, you're feeling good. You've got some pep in, in your step. You're, you're, you, you go into the classroom and the teacher has like some sort of assignment on the, the, the whiteboard or whatever you guys are using these days, smart board, I don't know. Um, and, and so you decide on that particular day that you feel like assignments are not something that you are going to do. Right, that you feel like I don't agree with the notion of giving an assignment, of giving homework. I think it's oppressive. I think it's judgmental. I mean, how dare they? You know, how dare they question my intellectual ability, my capability, my knowledge on a certain topic? Do they, are they trying to tell me that I'm dumb? Uh, you know, that I don't know what I should know? Right. So you're just saying I, I'm not going to do this. This is something I disagree with. This is something that I don't want to do, and so I'm not going to. And so you tell the teacher, you stand up in class, and you're saying, yes, uh, in the name of being inclusive, I am not going to do my homework assignments ever again because they are oppressive, and I disagree with the very notion that they should exist. I think, I mean, I don't think I know that if you were to do that, I think you have the freedom to do that, but the, the obvious response by the school and by the teacher would be like, okay, you don't have to do your homework assignments, but you're going to flunk your class. You're going to get an F. You're not going to pass, and you're, going to, you're, not, you're not going to be able to get a high school education, a high school diploma, and continue through the educational process that you know, America has instituted. And there is no exception to that. Right? There's no room for you to say, I, I disagree with the fundamental notion that assignments are relevant, that they are, are fair, that they should be in place, and so I'm not going to do them and not suffer the consequences of the established structure of the school system that you have entered into. Right? That's, that's not going to happen. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter any of that. Right? You have entered into this kind of contract with the school, and you've said, I'm going to do the assignments that are given to me. I'm going to abide by the rules that have been instituted and, and governed by the authorities that have been placed over me in this school, and you submit to those things, and you do what you're told. Right? That's the obvious thing. So all, all may be welcomed in, in the school system, right? And, and that's true. All may be welcomed in the school system, but you have to abide by the established rules and the, and the governances of that school system. That, that's just how society works. That's just how these particular schools work. And so the gospel, this text says, is good news, again, of great joy that is for all people. But what this does not mean is that you can enter into the quote-unquote school of the gospel 
and act however you want to act, that you can disagree with a fundamental notion of what it means to receive this gospel message and to live your life in light of it, to live your life in a relationship with Christ and, and, and act in contrary ways to what the Bible says you should act or, or what the Bible says you should, how you are, how are you to enter into this relationship, right? There is one way. The gospel makes no distinction of person, personality, culture, or, or people group, right? And this is made evident in the fact that the most unlikely, unqualified people, as we talked about with these shepherds, were the first to hear about this news. The gospel, in many ways, is is for the poor. It is for the needy. It's for the marginalized, the oppressed, for, for all of these different types of groups. It is for everyone. It doesn't make a distinction of people, but you cannot be in a relationship with Christ through this gospel message if you fundamentally live your life in opposition to what God's word says. In other words, the, the gospel may be for all, right? It was, was what this text says. It may be for all, but not all are for the gospel. The gospel may be inclusive, but you have to conform to its standards and forget about whatever the world is saying, however the world is defining what it means to be inclusive. You have to abide by the quote-unquote rules of the gospel, if you want to think about it that way. And so here's where people might get upset and say, but didn't Jesus, again, give us the ultimate example of what it means to be inclusive, of what love and acceptance should look like? I mean, after all, right, he spent time with tax collectors, prostitutes. He talked to people no one else would. He healed the blind and the weak. And, and, and all of those things are certainly true. I don't want to belittle that, right? That, that. Those are in Scripture, and I uphold Scripture to be of the highest authority. But Christ himself made the ultimate exclusive statement when it comes to the gospel by saying he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and that not a single person can come to the Father except through a relationship with him. And a true follower of Christ submits himself fully to the teaching and authority of Christ. In fact, if we look at what the angels say specifically about Christ at this point, right? So we submit ourselves to Christ and his authority that he is the way, that he is the truth, and he is the life. Well, who is this figure of Christ in our text specifically? And the angels, I think, help us with that in verses 11 through 14. It says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. See, this text paints a very different picture of the supposed Christ, who is being all-inclusive, you know, all-loving and accepting at least how the world would have you to believe about it, right? Notice again verse 11 in this text. It says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so up until this point, we've looked at the nature of this message, right? That it has both an exclusive element to it and an inclusive element to it. That it's for all people. That it makes no distinction of persons. But the exclusive element is that there is only one way to, to receive this gospel message, right? To, to have it truly transform your life, right? And that, that comes along with you have to, to, in order for that to be a reality, you have to conform to its standards. That's what it means to be a Christian, to conform to the image of Christ and to what is set forth in scriptures. But here in verse 11, as we continue moving forward, we find the person of the gospel message, or you could say perhaps the person who is the gospel message, 
specifically this person of Christ and, and who he is in, in relationship to all of us, to each of us in this room, and to each of us who have put our faith and trust in him as our Lord and Savior. So that's point number two, if you want to think about it this way. Realize that Christ is not your homeboy or your homie or your buddy or whatever sort of word that you want to fill in right there, right? This text is a very specific explanation, description of who Christ is, and, and it says Christ is not your homeboy. There's a video on, on YouTube. It's like from the from the 70s. Uh, it's called, it's a, it's a music video. It's called Jesus Is My Friend. Have you guys ever, have you guys ever heard that song, Jesus Is My Friend? No? I, I would encourage you to not listen to it because it's dumb, but th- there's a song called Jesus Is My Friend. It's got kind of like an accordion style of dun, 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 like that's kind of how it feels to me uh, it was a song in the 70s essentially about I mean you guessed it right it's about Jesus being your friend so so here are, are some of the lyrics right the, obviously it's like Jesus is my friend I have a friend in Jesus Jesus is my friend that that's kind of one of the main theme of the song but it, then it moves into I think the first verse of the song it says he taught me how to to live my life as it should be he taught me how to turn my cheek when people laugh at me, some good rhyming here, I've had friends before and I can tell you that he's one who will never leave you flat. I guess Jesus is some sort of spare tire. I'm not sure he won't leave you flat, but you guys didn't get that. But anyways, but in a world desperate for intimate, meaningful relationships, right? people can sometimes tend to see Jesus as their homie, right, just one of the guys, just someone who gives them this, like, warm, tingly feeling of, like, acceptance and love, and he's, like, this big, snuggly, you know, care bear off in the corner that we can just hug, and, and that's, that's how a lot of people can tend to view Christ. But, but in our text today, right, we see a very different, and I would say unique, depiction of Jesus in verse 11. And in fact, I think the exact way that Jesus is described in this text is unique in this passage to even all of Scripture, right? I think this is one of the only instances where it's, he is, the way that he is laid out, right, is, is, you know, Savior, Christ, and Lord all being in the same place. So let's look at it. Verse 11, it says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So there's a threefold description of who Jesus is in relationship to all of us, right? It says Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Christ, and Jesus is Lord. And I'm going to look at those just really briefly individually to see exactly what those mean. So first, Jesus is Savior. So here's the implication, obviously, not, not to be too obvious, but in order to need a Savior, there has to be a situation in need you need to be saved from. Right. In order for you to need saving, there needs something that you need to be saved from. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense. Right. That's not how you would describe the situation. And so Matthew 121, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. It says she will bear a son. That's Mary. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So there it is. Right, we have a Savior. What's he saving us from? He's saving us from our sins. So Christ, our text says, came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's which was and is currently lost. Why? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and have fallen extraordinarily, pandemoniously short of the glory of God. And so that's what it means for Christ to be Savior in relationship to you, that you had a problem and that Christ is the only means or the only solution to fixing that problem because he is your Savior. Right? And this certainly doesn't fall in line with 
Christ being your homie. So that's the first thing. Christ is your Savior. And then secondly, Christ is Christ. All right? It's Savior and then Christ. And the Greek here, I looked at this two weeks ago, it means Christos, which means Christ, obviously, Messiah, or anointed one. But I think to the Jews specifically, there was a connotation to that word that had a kingly connotation to it, right? It was, it was, they would have thought about that royalty aspect, that kingship that came along with that word. And in fact, in Luke chapter 23, verse 2, right, when they brought Jesus before Pilate to be judged, here's what they said. We found this man, we found Jesus misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So he's the Savior, right? He came to seek and to save that which was and is lost. He came to rescue you from your sinfulness because you fall short of the glory of God. And he's king. It says he has dominion. He has governance. He has authority. He has power. And this, who he, this is who he is in relationship to us. Again, so those are the first two things. And then the last one that this text talks about is Lord. So I know the, the housing market in, in Eliso Viejo or Orange County at large is, is ridiculously like high. If you, if you go on to the, the government website, I think the average value of, of the property, the property value in Elisa Vieja was like $800,000, which is ridiculous. Uh, but if you rent, which a lot of people do, or, or lease, you have what's called a landlord. And what that means essentially is that the, the person who owns the property is your landlord, right? He, and so he sets the terms of the agreements. He sets the terms of the lease. And that means that you have to abide by what he says. And so basically the landlord gets to decide, you know, what you can and cannot do and how much you pay for this property. Why? Because the property is his. He owns it. So we talk often of Jesus being the Lord of your life, right? Which means essentially agreeing to the terms he has set forth in scripture and submitting yourselves to them in obedience, and so all three of these things are high positions of honor. There are things that, that mean that you are not in some sense of buddy-buddy with, with Jesus. He, it says he is your Savior, he is your Christ, he is your Lord. He came to save you and to rescue you from your sins. He, came to, uh, he, came to, he, he says you have been bought with a price, right? That you have been purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ. And as such, right, we need to all acknowledge that the good news demands a response, and that response is ultimately to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I hope that you will all do that this morning, and even if you haven't. So let's pray, and we'll end for today.